This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You're some of our favorites. Today we have on Dr. Bill Danko, who has co-authored two books, the first titled The Millionaire Next Door, published in 1996, and the second, Richer Than a Millionaire, published in 2017. In 1973, Dr. Bill Danko was a student under the late Dr. Tom Stanley. He assisted him in the study of the affluent market. During their time together, they collected 20 years of research. And in that research, they interviewed over 100 millionaires to get their stories. In 1996, they published their book, The Millionaire Next Door. Dr. Danko's personal life greatly influenced his work as well. His grandparents were immigrants on both sides, and when they came to America... They couldn't read or write English. Here's Dr. Denko. One of the things that really set me in the direction that I ended up in, uh, my mother said, Bill, stay in school. Well, I, I took her pretty literally. Uh, went on, of course, college, graduate school, then became a professor. But when I look at the values that the grandparents and my parents and the stage that was set, it wasn't about being a victim. It wasn't about saying, oh, woe is me. It was basically, we got to integrate into society. We have to learn English. We have to be contributors. And I think those were the very first lessons that got me started on this uh, adventure that ended up with a couple of books and a career at a university and everything else that goes with these uh, successes. Regarding The Millionaire Next Door, there are basically seven key factors that help people become wealthy. And by far, the number one factor is to live below your means. And by that, I mean, we have to play not only offense, but defense. And what this means is, how much you make is really how you play offense. How much you keep is how you play defense. One of the issues is, people tend to live beyond their means, unfortunately. And in fact, they go into debt and they cause all sorts of other problems in their life. But one of the things that we have found consistently in our research, that for every wealthy person who can actually afford a luxury item, there are probably four to five others in the same neighborhood who are buying the same item because they want to look wealthy. And so you really have this problem. You either want to be wealthy or you want to look wealthy. Well, to look wealthy often means incurring debt. On the other hand, we have these people who have genuine high net worth capabilities, have a very nice bank account, have a lot of satisfaction in their life, doing what they do, but not having to impress anybody. And this is how the book really got its title, The Millionaire Next Door. We find that many individuals live in ordinary houses, and you have no idea that they're really quite comfortable, at least from a financial perspective. And so, through survey research, we were able to find 
there's a lot of people who have what we call dull normal occupations. In fact, in the appendix of uh, The Millionaire Next Door, we have a litany of occupations of people who you say, well, how can they possibly have money? For example, we have trailer park owners who are millionaires. Now, how can a trailer park owner be a millionaire? Well, here's one anecdote that was explained to me. Look, Bill, I have a piece of developed land with utilities on it, and I rent that land to somebody who owns their own house, namely their trailer. And so they pay their rent, I give them the utilities, and here's the key. If they don't pay their rent on time, I have a whole new definition of rolling stock. This is really a genius way of making money. You're giving people a legitimate place to live, and the deal is they pay their rent, and it's easy enough to evict them as opposed to having an apartment, which can be quite complex to evict somebody from. And I'm not advocating evicting anybody, but it certainly is a model that seems so déclassé, so blue-collar to say, oh, a trailer park. Well, the owner of the trailer park can actually make quite a living doing this. I interviewed this individual named Enrique. He's a Mexican immigrant, and he's worth $3 million. And I said, Enrique, you got to tell me your story. What do you do? He goes, well, I never took a marketing course. I don't have a business degree. But what I have is perfect musical pitch. And I'm also a piano tuner. And he says, I am able to get into a client's house and in the privacy of their living room, have a discussion with them about their piano needs. <laughs> and I said, this is interesting. He says, okay, I'm a credible individual, and he is. I'm able to help them buy a $50,000, $100,000 instrument, and I'm taking my stream of commissions, and I buy rental units. And I've created a net worth for my family of over $3 million by using my God-given talent to help people with their musical issues, and secondly, help my family at the same time. And so it really had nothing to do with formal education, but it had everything to do with understanding human behavior. And at the end of the interview, Enrique said, you know, Bill, America is the land of opportunity. God bless America. And to that I told Enrique, amen. You understand, my friend. You're getting this right. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko. And he has made it a lifetime pursuit to figure out why people have money as they get older and accrue wealth and why some don't. Simple stuff, it seems. The author of A Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire, his story, Dr. Bill Danko's story, continues here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Dr. Danko, co-author of Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire. Dr. Danko and Dr. Stanley had interviewed over 100 millionaires to get their stories for The Millionaire Next Door. We left off hearing some of those stories and how a lot of people they interviewed were millionaires of a type you just wouldn't expect. In my travels and giving speeches, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of bovine semen distributors. Now, these distributors are absolutely critical to the propagation of livestock, and it's a very organic job. Here's one of the problems that we have in America. You know, when we take sociology classes, we are told that higher categories of uh, social class say, well, you live in a better neighborhood, you have a formal education, and you have a high income and a nice house. There's a number of criteria that can define social class. And so what we have is this educational system that has said, okay, it is good to strive to the next level. Now, could you imagine this farmer who's very good at what he does in this bovine semen distribution business, sitting his daughter down at the breakfast table and saying, my dear, for your occupation, I want you to follow in my footsteps. And I think he's going to say to her instead, you know, this is a tough job, very organic, very, um, it's hard work, there's no question. I want you to go to a private school and hang out with a lot of rich kids and get some wild spending habits into your system. <laughs> because what I do is just so blue collar and so difficult, I don't want that for my child. Now, what have we just done here? Somehow, we get this notion that there's something better than what you're doing now. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a bovine semen distributor. There's nothing wrong with being a trailer park owner. There's nothing wrong with being a piano tuner. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's about understanding a niche that you can develop and exploit in a very positive way and create a living for your family. You know, and creating a lifestyle for your family. And so, sometimes we get distracted by societal norms of saying, well, somebody's going to look down on you if you do this kind of job uh, the rest of your life. That's, um, that's just a, a crazy, ill-informed way of looking at how to, uh, <laughs> how to live a, a, a satisfying life. Don't try to change if you're doing something really well right now. We really have then, not just the blue-collar millionaires who live next door, you know, you know certainly there are physicians who have become very, very wealthy. And here's one of the problems, though, that some physicians encounter. They have very high social prestige, lots of good education, <laughs> they're life-saving individuals, but what happens is there's a number of them, after going through their undergraduate program, their four years of medical school, their internship, their residency, their specialization, they say, man, I have been <laughs> suffering all these years. I'm going to live it up a little. And some of them tend to live it up a lot. And they get on this economic 
treadmill where they're just trying to, as long as they're still plying their trade, they are able to maintain their lifestyle. But what happens when they reach the age of 55 or 60 and you're a surgeon and you need some fine motor skills? What happens when you can no longer ply your trade? All of a sudden you take a hit on your retirement because you can't sustain the lifestyle that you've been used to. So, what we have here is really millionaires who understand the prudence of living below their means and having an occupation where they really understand how they fit into society's needs here. When we look at the millionaire next door and people on their quest for wealth, maybe there's an issue here that it's really not about money, but it's about money and happiness, or money and being miserable. And so my colleague, Rich Van Ness, and I, he's a retired professor, we would have these conversations in our uh, socializations and, and, and talking about what kind of legacy do we want to leave our children and our grandchildren. He has a number of grandchildren as well. And we said, you know, let's start making some notes here as to what's, what is it all about. And we agreed, money is good, but money and happiness is better. <laughs> One of the issues we investigated is how much is enough? And in fact, this is highlighted in one of the early chapters of Richer Than a Millionaire. And we asked the question, what is your current net worth? And the follow-up question, how much do you think you need in order to feel wealthy? Now this is interesting. When we ask you know, hundreds of people this question through our survey research, we're able to get some pretty good data points. And let me give you a couple of examples. If your current net worth, that is your assets minus your liabilities, that's your net worth. If your current net worth is, say, $500,000, what we found is that when people say, well, I need $2.5 million or five times more than that in order to feel wealthy, hmm. And then we asked, we had a group of people who had the $2.5 million net worth, and they said they needed twice that amount, or $5 million. Now look, here's the reality. Of the 120 million households in the United States, the median net worth is just about $100,000. This means half the households have less than $100,000 net worth, and the other half has more, have more than 100000 Well, to go from 100000 to a million, to be a millionaire in net worth, that puts you in the top 12% of the distribution. And to be a one percenter, you know, you think you need a, to be a billionaire to be a one percenter, but all you really need is about $11 million net worth that puts you in that, that very rarefied category. And so what we realized through our research is that there are a lot of people who have unrealistic expectations about how much they think they really need. And if we were to compare ourselves on a worldwide basis, 
uh, most Americans, even below the $100,000 uh, net worth category, are still well off on a worldwide basis, that's for sure. Maybe it's about perception of how you feel about your wealth. We incorporated a measure in our survey, one that was created by a professor, Ed Diener, who spent his career looking at life satisfaction. He put that in the public domain and we used it in our survey to examine, well, all right, you have this money in reality, but are you really happy? This is where we can contrast and compare the happy with the dissatisfied. And what we have found is that there's differences in behavior between the two groups. And part of it is based on some of the writings when we reread Benjamin Franklin's essay from 1758 titled The Way to Wealth. He talks about true prosperity and he says, while it's good to be industrious and prudent and frugal, all these things are good. That's how you build wealth. But for true prosperity, he says, don't forget to be charitable to be truly wealthy. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko. And my goodness, that last part is so true. Uh, to be truly happy means to be generous and to give back. And America is indeed one of the most, if not the most generous nation in the world. Actually, we are the most generous country in the world by far, by a very high standard. And it's not the rich that give the most as it relates to their actual net wealth. It's actually the middle class and the working class. And even many poor people who step up and give money and time. Generosity is the road to happiness, but boy, it helps to have some money in the bank. And also to just live below your means. Old school wisdom applied to modern life, all tied up in all of our stories because money is such an important part of our lives. More with Dr. Bill Denko here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories, and we've been listening to Dr. Danko, co-author of The Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire. We left off talking about his newer book, Richer Than a Millionaire, which is all about wealth and happiness, and how happiness is linked to being a giver rather than a taker. Some personal life events sent Dr. Danko down this road. His father, it turns out, died from MS at the age of just 38. His brother developed MS when he was only 23 years old. After his mother had a stroke, Dr. Danko took on the responsibility of his brother's care, which taught him some valuable lessons. He needed everything. Uh, had to feed him, bathe him, dress him, brush his teeth, floss his teeth, everything that goes with uh, caring for another individual. 
and it's fortunate we both liked each other, loved each other, I suppose. It's even a better word. Um, and uh, his mind was always pretty sharp, but he had absolutely no physical abilities, uh, couldn't even scratch his nose. Well, when I look at what does it mean to be a giver? What does it mean to be a, ch uh, a charitable person? I mean, we hear the expression, charity begins at home. Well, <laughs> let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's lift up to that idea. It's, um, it, it's something that had to be done, and I'm glad I was able to do it. It's, um, it, it made me realize that all these wonderful riches, and indeed, you do need some riches to be able to afford um, certain things that insurance can't pay for or won't pay for, um, and buy him a house so we can keep him out of a nursing home, um, all these things obviously did require some money, but it also required the will to do it. And I'm convinced it was the upbringing, um, my religious upbringing, I am not going to deny that, as well as the uh, role model my mother uh, gave me about don't be a complainer, don't be a victim, just get the job done, and uh, let's move on. Uh, what a wonderful philosophy, quite frankly. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I certainly hope, well, I know my kids have adopted it. I really do. I, I, I really see how they're raising their kids. Um, and now I hope the grandkids really can see the merit in that. And so along the way, not only, of course, with the millionaire next door, with the good professor Tom Stanley, and then the richer-than-a-millionaire with uh, Rich Van Ness, looking at some of the characters that I've been able to interact with over the years who really reinforce uh, these ideas. I mean, for example, there was one guy, I'll call him Mr. Young, uh, he was an alcoholic, multimillionaire, very successful in a material sense, very um, well-placed in his profession. But it was through Alcoholics Anonymous where he realized that he was powerless to control these uh, personal aspects of his life. And he told me in an interview that his happiness and self-esteem have nothing to do with his profession and his worldly, worldly success. They're derived from the soul. And so when we talked about the fact that he wasn't anxious about the future anymore and he made God central to his life, he really understood what true riches were all about. He understood the things he could control and he couldn't control. And another example, a physician, I'll call her Dr. Denise, that's her first name, but um, she was a radiologist and a young mom, and she wanted to be a good role model for her son. And what she wanted to do was show how charitable you can be by using your profession for the betterment of poor pregnant women by setting up an ultrasound clinic that was easily accessible to those in need. So when I look at some of these role models, of, of people who have 
you know, a very good niche understanding of their profession, well-educated, but never lose sight of the fact that we really have to be contributors to society. And this idea of charity that resonates with Dr. Denise, and it resonates with so many other people who are richer than a millionaire, is really something that we ought to uh, pay more attention to. I interviewed a neurosurgeon. His name is Dr. Harry. Uh, that's his first name. And this uh, physician has since become a emergency room neurosurgeon because when he said he was doing elective procedures, he always found himself on the end of lawsuits because nothing ever really turned out the way it ought to turn out in any kind of surgery. But when he sees people who are have a gratitude for being saved because of his life-saving ability in an emergency situation, it gives him this very positive feeling about humanity. And he related this story that once when he was driving through a snowstorm and he had no hotel to go to, but he saw the lights of a hospital in the distance, stopped at the hospital, identified himself as a physician, and they graciously let him stay for a day or two as the storm uh, dissipated. But he told me that he never forgot the generosity the hospital showed him, and he has now mentioned them in his will that they are going to get a charitable contribution because of that act of kindness they have given him. So, there are people out there who truly understand the idea of gratitude, not only to receive it, but also to pay it forward, as in Dr. Harry's example. My hope is especially, um, there, there's two different hopes here. The millionaire next door certainly develops the framework of these are the things that you have to do in order to become a wealthy individual. And it can, you know, being industrious and frugal and being a saver and having a diverse uh, portfolio and letting, you know, uh, time work for you in terms of multiplication and understanding that um, buying a depreciated car is probably in your best interest and just some good basic values. Because what has happened, and, and especially we see this in the United States, and I love this country, make no mistake about it. However, we have become so lopsidedly consumer-oriented where people need the next biggest and best. And people have told me after reading The Millionaire Next Door that it was a, a sobering read because they said, well, so that's how you do it. You don't have to live in the big house and have the new car. Now, Richer Than a Millionaire builds on those same wealth uh, processes of this is how you do it with empirical evidence that we have through survey research and richer than a millionaire we demonstrate that those people who indeed are charitable who give their time and talent to others in need 
truly are more satisfied people. It's my hope that we'll get people oriented towards this idea of being givers instead of takers and realizing what's truly valuable in life. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko, author of The Millionaire Next Door, and also richer than a millionaire. And my goodness, everything he's saying, I'm sure you're nodding at or smiling about, and the degree to which we can do the things he talks about determines a lot of our life's wealth and our happiness. Dr. Danko's story, and so many Americans' stories who live under their means and who are generous, all of those millions of stories in this great country here are now American stories. our American stories and we love telling stories about our men and women in uniform on this show and we don't wait for Memorial Day and Veterans Day to do it we do it all year round because the men deserve it and we talk about men present and men and women past who served some who've paid the ultimate price and for this one we turn to General John Kelly he spoke to a group of families who'd lost sons and daughters in service of our nation This was back in 2014. He was then a four-star general. He offered them a glimpse into the on-duty lives of their loved ones. He told the story of the last six seconds of two combat Marines killed in action under his command. Two men who are absolutely extraordinary and absolutely what the Marine Corps expects from each and every member. On the 22nd of April, 2008, two Marine battalions, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, the walking dead from Vietnam fame, and the 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines, were switching out in a place called Ramadi, Iraq. One battalion was going home in a few days, and the other just starting its seven-month tour. Two Marines, Corporal Jonathan Yale and Lance Corporal Jordan Herter, 22 and 20 years old, respectively, one from each battalion. They were assuming the watch together at the entrance gate to an outpost that contained a makeshift barracks housing 50 Marines. The same broken down ramshackle building was also home to 100 Iraqi police who were our allies. They were my men in this fight against the terrorists in Ramadi. Yale was a dirt poor mixed race kid from Virginia with a wife and a daughter and a mother and a sister who lived with him, and he supported them as well, on $13,000 a year. Herder was a middle-class white kid from Long Island. The two of them were from two completely different worlds in our country. Not good, not bad, just different. Had they not joined the Marine Corps, they would never have known each other. They would never have even understood that multiple Americas exist simultaneously, depending on your education level, 
your family's income status maybe. But they were Marines, they were combat Marines, and because of this bond, they were brothers as close as if they were born to the same woman. The mission orders they received from the sergeant, their squad leader, I'm sure, went something like this. Okay, you two clowns, stand this post and let no unauthorized personnel or vehicles pass. You clear on that? And I'm sure Yale and Herder then rolled their eyes and said in unison something like, yes, sergeant, we got it. We know what we're doing. Screw you. <laughs> Again, I'm prior enlisted. I know how they think. <laughs> they then relieved two other Marines on watch, who, as it turned out, were probably the two luckiest Marines on the earth that day. And they assumed those posts, Yale and Herder. A few minutes later, a very large blue truck turned down the alleyway that was no more than 100 yards in length. It sped its way through the serpentine concrete walls, Jersey walls. The truck then stopped just short of where these two were posted. It detonated. It killed both of them catastrophically. And if you know what combat's like, you know what I'm talking about when I say catastrophically. 24 brick masonry houses were damaged or destroyed by the blast. A mosque 100 meters away collapsed. The truck's engine came to rest 200 meters away, and it knocked down a building before it came to rest. Their explosive guys reckoned that the blast was made by a bomb of at least 2,000 pounds of explosive. Two died, and because these two young infantrymen died, they didn't know how to run from danger. 150 men, 50 U.S. Marines and 100 Iraqis were saved. When I read the situation report, a few hours after it happened, I called the regimental commander, Luke Craparata, and I asked him for details about what happened. It seemed different to me. Unfortunately, Marines dying or being seriously wounded is common in combat. We expect Marines, and for that matter, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and coast guardsmen, regardless of rank, to do their duty, to stand their ground, and to die, if that's what the mission requires. The regimental commander had just returned from the site. He agreed with me, for it reported to me that there were no American witnesses, just Iraqi police. I figured if there was any chance of finding out what actually happened and to recognize these young men for what they'd done, I'd have to go down there myself, because I understood, unfortunately, that the bureaucrats in Washington would never accept Iraqi statements for what had taken place. If there was any chance at all, it had to come under my signature. So I traveled to Ramadi the next day and spoke to half a dozen Iraqi police, all of whom told me the same story. They said the truck turned down into the alley and sped up as it made its way through the serpentine Jersey walls. They all said they knew immediately what was going on, particularly when the Marines began to fire. The Iraqis all began firing as well, then to a man ran for safety just prior to the explosion. They all survived. Many were injured, some seriously injured. But as one of the Iraqis said to me, sir, they'd run from the danger like any normal man would to save his life. What he didn't know until then, he said, and what he learned at that instant, was that Americans are not normal. With tears welling up, he said to me, Sir, in the name of Allah, no sane man would have stood there 
and done what they did. No sane man. They saved all of us. What we didn't know at the time, what I didn't know at the time, and only learned a couple of days later, after I wrote a summary of statement of, these, of this bravery and submitted both Yale and Herder for Navy Crosses, which is the number two award for Marines and sailors in combat. What I didn't know was that one of the security cameras we had at the location that was damaged initially in the blast had caught everything. It happened exactly as these Iraqis described it to me. It took exactly six seconds by that recording from the truck entered the valley until it exploded. Six seconds. And you can watch, and I did watch many, many times on this recording, the last six seconds of their lives. When it first started, I suppose it took about a second or so for the Marines to separately come to the conclusion about what was going on. They had no time to talk it over, only enough time to take half an instant and think about what the sergeant maybe had told them a few minutes before, let no unauthorized persons or vehicles to pass. At that point, I think, according to the recording, the Marines had about five seconds to live. Think of it, five seconds to live. I don't think they knew it. They didn't have time. Took about another two seconds for the two jarheads to raise their weapons, to take aim, and to open up at that truck. By this time, the truck was halfway through the barriers and gaining speed the whole time. Here, the recording shows a number of Iraqi policemen, some of whom had fired their AK-47s, were now scattering like the normal and rational men they were, some running right past the Marines. The two Marines had about three seconds to live. For about two seconds more, the recording shows the Marines firing their weapons nonstop. The truck's windshield exploded into shards of glass as their rounds took it apart and undoubtedly tore into the body of the terrorist that was trying to kill their brothers. Unaware of the danger at the time, the Marines and Iraqi soldiers could take comfort in the fact if they'd have known that two Marines were on watch and would die before they ran. The truck careens to a stop immediately in front of the two Marines. In all of this instantaneous violence, Yale and Herder never hesitated. They never stepped back. They never even started to step back. They never shifted their weight. With their feet spread shoulder-width apart, they leaned into the fire and fired as fast as they could. They had only, at this point, one second to live. And then the truck explodes, the camera goes blank, and the two young men go to their God. Six seconds. Not enough time to think about their country or their flag or about their lives or their deaths but more than enough time for two very brave young men, like your sons and daughters, like your brothers and sisters, like your spouses, two very brave young men to do their duty for eternity. That is the kind of people who are on watch for us 
all over the world tonight. That is the kind of young men and women that came from your families. And for those of you tonight and all of the families that have lost the light of their lives, they can say to every American that it was my boy or it was my girl who stood their post and did their duty <clears throat> into eternity. Corporal Jonathan Yale's story, Lance Corporal Jordan Herders, and that's General John Kelly. Their last six seconds revealed everything about their character and the Marine Corps. is Lee Habib and this is Our American Stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org that's OurAmericanNetwork.org they're some of our favorites and now it's time for one of our favorite regular segments the story of a song by the way go to our website pull them down we've done a whole bunch here's Greg Hengler If you happen to be watching television in the mid-1980s, chances are your memory of our next story of a song is inseparable from the two-hour pilot episode of Miami Vice, which premiered on September 16, 1984. The the in-the-air tonight scene is arguably the most memorable and famous scene from the Miami Vice television series and is regularly cited as one of the greatest, most influential moments in the history of television. Despite the fairly minimal amount of plot progression it contains, the scene is set to almost the entire length of the song In the Air Tonight by Phil Collins, some five and a half minutes stretched out through the use of flashbacks and unusual cinematic shots highlighting reflections of Miami City lights on the polished black bodywork of Crockett's Ferrari Daytona Spider. During the long drive towards the inevitable confrontation with a Colombian drug dealer and his goons, Crockett pulls over at a desolate phone booth to call his ex-wife, Caroline, asking her if their relationship was real. Knowing this may be the last time he speaks to her. It was real, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. You bet it was. Sonny, what's wrong? The Phil Collins song in the air tonight became inextricably linked with the Miami Vice series after it was used in the first episode. But what has become Collins' signature song was released in January 1981 as the lead single from his debut solo album Face Value, almost four years before the Miami Vice episode. Here's Phil Collins sharing the story of his song in the air tonight. We did a long tour in 1977, and that the result of that was my marriage breaking. And um, I went through all the things of trying to make it work. Uh, by the time I came back from Canada, 
Mike and Tony were doing their solo albums, and so I had some time on my hands. And I just bought, we'd all bought home studios. So I started to fiddle about. I took over the master bedroom, you know, moved everything out and put my studio in there. And it wasn't soundproofed and it wasn't, you know, there was clicks and buzzes. If the fridge went on or the phone rang, you heard it. I can't remember the specific day of In The Air Tonight, but I mean, it, literally I was, I had a, a really nice local pub that I had friends in and I was going through a bit of a hard time. And so I'd go down there and have a few drinks and talk and laugh and then come back ready to work, you know. I had no one to answer to. I mean, you know, I, I had a wife and two children and two dogs and, and I didn't have anything suddenly, you know. So it was like, um, you know, a lot of time on my hands. I was angry, I was miserable, I was sad, you know, I was depressed about not having my family around. I mean, I was constantly on the phone to her and the phone kept going down and, you know, we argued a lot and uh, as, as people do when they go through that kind of thing. The lyrics were all improvised. I don't know what it's about, which, which is, you know, the more people say to me what it's about, I just say, I can promise you it isn't about whatever you think it is, because I don't know what it's about. There's a lot of anger in there, I think. Um, but it, I didn't really ever intend it to be that way. It's just spontaneous lyrics, so I guess I wasn't afraid to show my feelings. Seals. That's what it sounds like. On the original demo, the drums just come in. I, I recorded some drums at my house, and they just come, you know, all been a pack of lies. I can feel it coming. The drums just enter. But of course, you know, drummers always busy themselves. So by the time we got into recording it, I just did a fill into it, you know. Da, 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 da. I mean, like the, the take before would have been something different and the take after, if I'd have done another take, would have been something different again. It just, it just, we decided to keep that take and it happened to have that drum fill on it. And, uh, you know, it's just become what I'm known for, but, uh, but it was real luck. Yeah. <laughs> My ex-wife got very mad when I wrote this album because um, she felt I was capitalising on it, on the sadness, you know. 
a lot of people, including my ex-wife, were very uh, surprised that I actually could say that kind of thing. But to me, that's what writing songs you know, is all about. And great job, as always, by Greg Hengler. And you've been listening to Phil Collins, who is one of the rare singing drummers in rock and roll. Don Henley and Levon Helm being the only other guys who lead the band in the drum pit. And using his pain to make art, that's what happens. And to hear more of our stories of songs, go to ouramericannetwork.org. The story of In the Air Tonight, the story of Phil Collins' breakup, here on Our American Stories. we continue here with Our American Stories, and our next story is about a remarkable woman who played a crucial role in the settlement of the American West, Nancy Kelsey. When the lure of a new life on the farthest edge of the frontier beckoned to Ben Kelsey, Nancy was determined to be at her husband's side. Together they braved hunger, disaster, illness, betrayal, and death. Nancy Kelsey and her family would play a crucial role in California and American history, becoming the first wave of a great tide that would transform a nation. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he's a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's Roger McGrath with the story of Nancy Kelsey. Nancy Kelsey was the first woman to cross overland to California. She did so carrying her baby daughter and an otherwise all-male party of pioneers that crossed the Great Basin and the Sierra Nevada Mountains with no maps or guides and walked barefoot into California in 1841, the first of a tide of immigrants that would sweep California into the United States. She also became known as the Betsy Ross of California for making the flag raised by the American rebels at Sonoma in 1846. She would give birth to 10 children and survive unimaginable hardships. She was a pioneer woman who was emblematic of the spirit, drive, and strength that animated Americans on the frontiers of the Old West. William and Sarah Roberts welcomed the birth of their daughter, Nancy, on August 1, 1823. Sarah is only 17 years old, but that is not unusual in the Scotch-Irish frontier settlements in Barron County, Kentucky. Nancy is born only 30 years after the first whites settled in Barron County, but her parents pick up in 1826 and move west to Jackson County, Missouri, in the far western part of that state. They settle among fellow pioneers from Kentucky. Nancy is reared on the family farm in Jackson County, and in 1838, 15-year-old Nancy marries 25-year-old Ben Kelsey, also a native of Barron County, Kentucky. Here's Cecilia Holland sharing anecdotes from her scrupulously researched book about Nancy Kelsey. 
An Ordinary Woman, the remarkable story of the first American woman in California. On October 25th, 1838, a girl of 15 rode eagerly through the blazing Missouri autumn to her wedding. She was a tall, pretty girl with long, dark hair and dark eyes and a wide, humorous mouth, her face shaped with the high cheekbones and strong jaw of her Scotch-Irish heritage. Her hands on the reins were strong and capable, and she rode astride. No pampered, sheltered city flower. She had been working since her childhood. She could milk a cow, skin a deer, plant a field, drive a team of oxen, load and shoot a rifle. She had made the dress she was wearing. The child of pioneers, bred to courage and risk, she had grown up in the wilderness, only a few miles from the great Missouri River that in 1838 was the border of the settled United States. Her name was Nancy Roberts, and Westerin was in her blood. In marrying so young, and marrying whom she did, she was choosing a Westerin life, one that would take her across the unmapped continent and change American history. Ben and Nancy have a daughter, Martha Ann, in 1839, and in 1841, a son who dies eight days after birth. During May 1841, the Kelseys joined some 60 other members of the Western Emigration Society to attempt the first pioneer crossing to California. The group will go down in history as the Bartleson Bidwell Party. Here's Nancy Leak. Nancy is a librarian who writes biographies of California pioneers for children. She's the author of Nancy Kelsey Comes Over the Mountain, the true story of the first American woman in California. This is 1841. People in Missouri, where they were living, were just beginning to hear about California. For a very few years, the Oregon Trail had been open and some people were going to Oregon, but nobody had yet gone to California. That was part of Mexico. But there was an American there, Dr. John Marsh. He wrote some letters that were published in the newspapers extolling the wonders of California. And also, um, they heard from fur trappers who had been been to California. And they said, you know, it's, it's empty. There's hardly anybody there. Of course, they weren't counting the Native Americans. It was just empty land, free for the taking. Fertile soil, plenty of game, the hunting and fishing would be good, good weather, and above all, it had a healthy climate. And that was one of the problems people in Missouri had. Ben Kelsey had gotten ill a lot, probably malaria, a lot of chills and fevers, and people were always looking for a healthier climate. And Ben Kelsey had what his wife said was an adventurous disposition. In other words, he couldn't sit still, and he always wanted to be trying a new place. Although they are tough, hardy, and ornery, the members of the party know nothing about the Far West. Our ignorance of the route was complete, said John Bidwell. We knew that California lay west, and that was the extent of our knowledge. Another member of the party produces a map which shows two large rivers running westward from the Great Salt Lake to California. He suggests they take along tools for constructing boats so they can float downstream to California on the second half of their journey. 
When Nancy Kelsey is asked why she is willing to undertake a journey across half a continent to California, she replies, Where my husband goes, I go. I can better endure the hardships of the journey than the anxieties for an absent husband. The party of willing but woefully ignorant pioneers has the good fortune to fall in with a group of Jesuit missionaries led by the six foot eight inch Belgian born but American educated Father Pierre Jean de Smet. The black robes are being guided and schooled in frontier survival by one of the greatest of all American mountain men, Irish born Tom Fitzpatrick, and several of his beaver trapping partners. Here again is Cecilia Holland. East, in the settled United States, opinion was divided. Some people believed that hardy men could cross the continent, but mere women and children would never survive. It was tantamount to murder to take a woman on such a trip. That some missionary women made it was God's providence. In any case, the West was worth nothing, a desert littered with rocks, infested with Indians. Other people claimed that the trip was a lark, a mere matter of following the sun. No matter. They were leaving the United States, and somewhere out there California lay, and a new life. On May 18, 1841, the combined party leaves Sapling Grove, just south of present-day Kansas City. On June 1, the pioneers, mountain men and missionaries, crossed the Platte River in central Nebraska, and three weeks later they reached Fort Laramie in Wyoming. By now a 20-year veteran of the High Plains and the Rockies, Fitzpatrick smooths the way for them, and the party is making excellent time. Here again is Nancy Leak. At first I imagined this trip was kind of like a nice summer camping trip. Going along the Platte River, it's not crowded yet. Plenty of grass for their oxen and other animals. The weather's pretty good. They worry about Indians, but actually they don't have much trouble with Indians. There is one incident where there's a young man in the group named Nicholas Dawson, and he goes out hunting, and he meets up with a band of Cheyenne Indians who take everything he has, his rifle, his pistol, his knife, his clothing. They take everything, and he comes running back into camp, and Nancy thought this was hilarious because she says, how you would have laughed if you had seen him come running back into camp. He was entirely naked. They had taken everything. Well, Tom Fitzpatrick goes out and talks to the Indians, and he gets almost everything back. But ever after that, Nicholas Dawson was known as Cheyenne Dawson. Fitzpatrick guides them through South Pass during the middle of July, and by August 10, they reach Soda Springs in southeastern Idaho. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nancy Kelsey, a remarkable woman who played a key role in the settlement of the West. Where my husband goes, I go, she said. And by the way, so many people thought it was tantamount to murder to take a woman, let alone her children, across that territory, through the deserts, and to another country at the time. And that's what California was. More on Nancy Kelsey's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Nancy Kelsey. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath. They've been on the trail less than three months, made relatively rapid progress, and have not suffered great hardship. Except for the hailstorms, frosty night temperatures, a tornado, and a run-in with a herd of buffalo. Here again is Cecilia Holland, author of An Ordinary Woman, the remarkable story of the first American woman in California. One evening, as the settlers were camping by the water, Fitzpatrick came in among them in great excitement. A drove of buffalo was headed straight toward them. He got all the men out with their guns to build fires between the camp and the oncoming tide. Anne wrapped tight in her arms, Nancy and the other women bundled together sleepless through the den. All night long, the men fed the fires and shot off their guns, splitting the onrushing buffalo into two streams that thundered by on either side of the camp in a continuous, hours-long stampede. One cannot nowadays describe the rush and wildness of the thing, Bidwell said much later. In the morning, the camp was an island in a great sea of woolly brown bodies. The sky was a milky shroud of dust, the buffalo trampling down into the river to drink had fouled the water so that the people could not stomach it. Now a decision has to be made. Fitzpatrick is taking the missionaries to the Pacific Northwest. Here again is Nancy Leake, author of Nancy Kelsey Comes Over the Mountain, the true story of the first American woman in California. Tom Fitzpatrick, the trail guide, tells them, you do not want to attempt this. That territory has barely been explored it's deserts, it's mountains, it's desolate. And so they, they say, all right, we'll go to Oregon. It's too dangerous to go to California. But Ben Kelsey is not the kind of man to change his mind. He's going to California. And wherever he goes, his wife is going to go with him. That's the way she was. Wherever my husband goes, I go with him. 34 of the Bartison Bidwell party are determined to push on to California. Among them is the 18-year-old Nancy Kelsey and her now two babies. Martha Ann is in front of her and another one inside of her. Fitzpatrick draws the pioneers a map in the dirt, warning that if they miss Mary's River, known as the Humboldt River today, they will die long before reaching California. In mid-August, without guide or compass, they turn their horses and wagons south and follow the Bear River into Utah. They reach the Great Salt Lake on August 30. They skirt the northern shore of the lake and in the blazing desert to the west are forced to abandon their wagons and pack everything on horses and mules. Desperate now, they turned east and cut as straight across country as they could to find the Bear River again before they all died of thirst. The weaker animals straggled behind and they had to let them lag. The oxen drawing the two Kelsey wagons were trudging along so slow even Anne could outwalk them. The ground was white with salt and the wagon wheels crunched out trails as if in snow. Salt spangled the blades of grass that straggled up from the crusted ground. Anne cried for water and Nancy gave her the last in the canteen. She looked at Ben, driving the oxen, wondering when he had drunk last. Her own mouth was so dry it hurt, and her lips cracked, and she tasted wisps of blood. Carrying her baby in front of her, Nancy Kelsey rides horseback. 
California is hundreds of miles away. The party stumbles upon the headwaters of the Humboldt River and follows its course southwestward across Nevada. Piutes occasionally block their path, and when they do, Nancy holds her baby tightly in her arms. Everyone knew how Indians stole children. At one place, the Indians surrounded us, armed with bows and arrows, said Nancy. But my husband leveled his gun at the chief and made him order his Indians out of arrow range. The pioneers reached the sink of the Humboldt near present-day Lovelock early in October and then began a grueling trek across 40-mile desert to the Carson River. Along the way, they have to abandon their wagons. Their, their oxen are exhausted, and they're starting to eat their oxen. They've eaten most of the food they'd packed in the wagons, so there's not much point in pulling these wagons through the sand anymore. So they abandon the wagons, pack everything on their animals, continue along the Humboldt River, and then eventually the river sinks into the sand. And they are facing the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And that is just a wall of rock, and they're exhausted, they're starving. The whole party had considered turning around and going back to Fort Hall in Idaho, but that wasn't really an option. They knew they didn't have the food, they didn't have the supplies to make the trip back. They were going to have to go over the Sierra Nevada. As they begin their climb, John Bidwell looks up the eastern face of the Sierra Nevada and describes what he sees as naked mountains whose summits still retain the snows of perhaps a thousand years. The climb is slow and arduous, and breathing becomes difficult. There is no established trail to follow. Boulders and fallen trees block their path. Streams must be crossed and recrossed. On October 18, they reach Sonora Pass at an elevation of nearly 10,000 feet. Peaks on either side of the pass are another 2,000 feet higher. Fortunately, a heavy snowfall has not yet blanketed the Sierras. Now they have to pioneer a route down the steep and deep canyons on the western side of the Sierras into the San Joaquin Valley. They have little or no food. Their clothes, blankets, and diapers are in tatters, and their shoes have long worn away. She says, of course, we did not know where we were. The party scattered here to find the best way to descend the mountains. I was left with my babe alone, and as I sat there on my horse and listened to the sighing and moaning of the winds through the pines, it seemed the loneliest spot in the world. The descent was so abrupt that an Indian who had come to us on the mountain was allowed to lead my horse for part of the way. At one place, an old man of the party, his name was George Henshaw, became so exhausted that they had to threaten to shoot him before he would proceed. At another place, four pack animals fell over a bluff, and we never tried to recover them. They had gone so far it was no use to think of it. We were then out of provisions as we had eaten all our cattle. At this point, uh, Nicholas Dawson says, Once I remember when I was struggling along trying to keep Monty, that's the name of his mule, trying to keep Monty from going over, I looked back and saw Mrs. Kelsey a little way behind me with her child in her arms, barefooted and leading her horse, a sight I shall never forget. And he thought, well, if she can do it, I guess I can do it. And they kept going. Nancy recalled, We lived on roasted acorns for two days. 
My husband came very near dying with cramps, and it was suggested to leave him, but I said I would never do that. At one place, I was so weak I could hardly stand. Well, Nancy Kelsey had a right to be exhausted. She was not only carrying her daughter, but she was also five months pregnant. And you've been listening to the story of Nancy Kelsey, and you've been listening to Roger McGrath tell it. And again, there's no finer storyteller in the country when it comes to stories about the American West and the American frontier. And there's no more important story to tell than Nancy Kelsey's, the first woman to move to California. And this is back before an interstate, back before anything. This is just, well, not long after the Lewis and Clark story. And by the way, we have told a whole lot of chapters in the Lewis and Clark journey. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. I think we have 40 running segments now uh, on the Lewis and Clark expedition. One of the great, great stories in American history. Stephen Ambrose, of course, chronicled it in Undaunted Courage. And I believe it was Ambrose's finest work. When we come back, this remarkable story of a woman pioneer, a woman adventurer, her name Nancy Kelsey. Her story continues here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Nancy Kelsey. And once again, here's McGrath. After treacherous descents, they reach the middle fork of the Stanislaus River and follow it down into the San Joaquin Valley. Seeing the coast ranges off to the west, they at first reckon California is still hundreds of miles farther away. They soon realize their mistaken notion. And on November 4, 1841, after a half year on the trail, the pioneers arrive at the Mount Diablo Ranch of an American settler, Dr. John Marsh. He regularly sent letters to the East urging Americans to settle in California, hoping a growing number of Americans would cause California to go the way of Texas. The six-month journey to Marsh's ranch makes Nancy Kelsey the first woman to cross overland to California from the United States. Throughout the journey, she was an inspiration to the men. Her cheerful nature and kind heart brought many a ray of sunshine through the clouds that gathered round a company of so many weary travelers, said fellow pioneer Joseph Childs. Here again is Nancy Leake. In many ways, she was just an ordinary pioneer woman, but those pioneer women were remarkable women. They could handle any situation and, and do it with, with good humor and a lot of grit. Joseph Childs, who was also a member of the Bidwell-Bartleson party, said, she bore the fatigues of the journey with so much heroism, patience, and kindness that there still exists a warmth in every heart for the mother and her child. 
they were always forming silver linings with every dark cloud that assailed them. The Kelseys built a log cabin in the Napa Valley, a mile south of today's Calistoga. In February 1842, Nancy gives birth to Sarah Jane, who lives only one week before dying. Nancy has two little graves now, bookmarking each end of the journey. But as she has done before, Nancy Kelsey stoically endures. Meanwhile, Ben is making money hunting and trapping, and with the proceeds, buying cattle. During the spring of 1843, Ben decides to drive a hundred head of cattle north to American settlements in Oregon's Willamette Valley. He is joined by his brother Andy and three other men. Although pregnant, Nancy goes along. Five-year-old Martha Ann goes as well. At a crossing of the Sacramento River, while the men were busy driving the cattle, Indians raid the Kelsey's camp. Nancy yells for help, and Nicholas Dawson is the first to arrive. Because of his enormous size, Dawson is known as Bear. Bear came and shot one of the Indians within a few feet of me, said Nancy. Then he compelled the rest of them to help with the cattle crossing. Several weeks later, while camped near Mount Shasta, the Kelseys have Indian trouble again. During the night, Indians shoot several of the party's horses. And the next day, after a mile on the trail, there is a pitched battle. Nancy is in the midst of it, sitting on her horse and holding her daughter. There are several more Indian attacks before they reach the safety of the American settlements in the northern portion of the Willamette Valley. After selling their cattle and purchasing supplies at Fort Vancouver, they begin their return trip. En route, Nancy gives birth to another daughter, Margaret. Near Mount Shasta, they have another pitched battle with a large group of Indian warriors. Well, the arrows were flying into camp, said Nancy. I took one baby and hid my child in the brush. I returned and took the other child and hid that child also. The moon was shining brightly. Each time the men fired their guns, I heard an Indian fall into the river. As I hid the little ones, I wondered if I'd ever see daylight again. Think of it. We had only five men, and there were possibly a hundred Indians. Once back in the Napa Valley, the Kelseys prosper, again hunting, trapping, and grazing cattle and horses. In April 1846, Nancy gives birth to a son, Andrew. Two months later, on June 14, American settlers in Northern California revolt against Mexican rule by taking control of Sonoma and declaring establishment of the Bear Flag Republic. In Sonoma on that fateful day is Nancy Kelsey, holding Andrew in her arms. She watches as the American rebels raise the Bear Flag with its humped back grizzly and lone star. She has reason to be proud of the new flag, she made it using a three by five piece of cloth and a strip of red flannel from her petticoat. She will soon be called the Betsy Ross of California. Her husband Ben is a prominent bear flagger. He later gets into a dispute with John C. Fremont and gives him a tongue lashing when Fremont assumes command of the rebels. The Kelseys were known for their use of wicked and blasphemous language, said Nancy. 
made a mule skinner blush. Here again is Cecilia Holland. On July 8th, the U.S. Navy seized Monterey without firing a shot. The Mexican dons fled. A day later, the bear flag came down that flagpole in Sonoma, and the stars and stripes went up. On the whole, the bears showed more skill and foresight than one might expect. After all, the bears were ordinary people, not government-sanctioned heroes. Thanks to Ben and Nancy Kelsey, they founded California, and it became American. When Ben later falls sick with malaria, Nancy rides hell-bent for Sonoma in medicine. And Root, in an Indian, known locally as Chief Augustine, tries to lasso her and drag her off the horse. Although Nancy was without her pistol, she manages to escape and continue her wild ride to town. She returns with the medicine and tells Ben of the attempted horse theft and her narrow escape. Ben explodes with rage and bolts out of his sick bed. Now he is the one on the back of a galloping horse. He tracks down Chief Augustine and kills him with a pistol shot. Nancy continues to have children. Mary Ellen in 1848, Nancy Rose in 1851, William in 1854, Georgia Ann in 1859, and Samuel in 1861. When Samuel was born, she was 38. She'd been pregnant or nursing for more than 20 years, and for a good deal of it, she had been on the trail. The year Samuel is born, the family travels across the Southwest. We drifted into Texas, said Nancy, and were attacked by the Comanche. The men went hunting turkey, and a neighbor woman and myself were alone with our children when I discovered the Indians approaching our camp. I loaded the guns and suggested we hide. The oldest two girls ran and hid in the brush, and the 16-year-old looked out for himself by hiding alone. We and the smaller children hid in the cave. I heard the Indians above, but they did not discover us. After they pillaged the camp, they found the girls and succeeded in catching Mary Ellen. Poor girl. She was only 13, and even now I can hear her screams when they scalped her. The Comanches leave Mary Ellen for dead, but Nancy finds her still clinging to life. Nancy staunches the bleeding and stitches Mary Ellen's head wounds. The girl survives, but said Nancy. She was demented after that and died in Fresno five years later from the injuries she had received. In 1879, Nancy's son Samuel dies in an accident during the harvest, and in 1889, her husband, Ben, dies. But his legacy survives to this very day. His name is everywhere in California, Kelseyville on Clear Lake, the forgotten hamlet of Kelsey in El Dorado County, the Kelsey Trail, the Kelsey River, Kelsey Canyon, Kelsey Creek. After Ben's death, Nancy settles on a ranch in the Cuyama Valley, northeast of Santa Barbara. She raises cattle and chickens, administers herbal remedies to sick neighbors, delivers babies, and once rides 100 miles in one 24-hour period on a mission of mercy. Nancy dies of skin cancer at the age of 73 in 1896 and is buried on a ranch in oak-studded Cottonwood Canyon. The native daughters of the Golden West marked her grave with a plaque. 
Each year, an equestrian group conducts a three-day, 150-mile ride through the Cuyama Valley. Perhaps not up to Nancy Kelsey's one-day effort, but a feat of endurance nonetheless. On the third day, the riders stop at the Pioneer's gravesite and pay tribute to the Betsy Ross of California and the first woman to cross the continent to what would become the Golden State. And thanks to Roger McGrath, as always, and he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. What a terrific story. Nancy Kelsey's story. Ten children, a pioneer, well, the pioneer of pioneer women. I mean, she was one of the originals. Gets married at the age of 15 in 1838 and lives through a remarkable and dynamic century in American life and goes where her husband goes and sometimes goes where he isn't, as we heard towards the end of that story. Nancy Kelsey's story, a fundamental part of American history and the founding of the American West and the development of the American West here on Our American Stories. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.